Hello, and welcome to this audio edition of Philip Husher's program notes for upcoming concerts by the Chicago Symphony Orchestra. My name is Rich Caparola. Concerts by the CSO on Thursday, March 7th through Sunday, March 10th, feature guest conductor David Ofkam and pianist Nicholas Angelich. The program includes Beethoven's Coriolan Overture, as well as Beethoven's Emperor Piano Concerto No. 5. After intermission comes Antonin Dvorak's Symphony No. 7. Here are program notes by Philip Huscher on Beethoven's Emperor Piano Concerto No. 5, a work lasting about 38 minutes. It's hard for today's audiences to appreciate the audacities of Beethoven's final piano concerto, the one we call The Emperor. For those who are familiar, not only with this great work, but with any of the later concertos that took their cues from Beethoven's example, the grand piano flourishes with which the score begins have little shock value, nor does the size and complexity of the first movement trouble those who not only have traveled its many paths before, but also have come to accept the vast landscapes of Mahler. But to those who packed the Leipzig Gewandhaus in November 1811, this was new music, full of revelations and surprises. To begin with, Beethoven wasn't at the keyboard. This was the only one of his five piano concertos that he didn't personally introduce to the public. Although it wasn't common knowledge at the time, by 1811, his deafness was so advanced, he began to notice symptoms as early as 1796, that he may have turned the work over to other hands rather than admit the difficulties of playing for an audience. In 1815, he abandoned work on sketches for a sixth concerto in D, certain that his performing days were over. Beethoven begins with a single majestic E-flat major chord from the full orchestra, one of those sounds so commanding and individual that today, without hearing another note, we know what is sure to follow. The 1811 audience, of course, didn't know what to expect, and they surely wouldn't have predicted the sudden cadenza-like eruption from the soloist that Beethoven gives them. Hearing from the soloist so early in a concerto is bold and unconventional, but it's not without precedent. Mozart tried it once early in his career, and Beethoven himself had begun his previous concerto, the fourth in G major, with the piano alone. But here, Beethoven isn't striving for novelty. He's preparing us for what lies ahead, a musical argument of unprecedented breadth and scale between two protagonists of equal stature. Only after Beethoven commands our attention with three emphatic chords, each followed by long-winded outbursts from the piano, does he settle down to his first theme, a heroic tune in E-flat major. The piano falls silent, and the orchestral exposition sweeps forward with great energy. This is an enormous movement, lasting some 20 minutes, and it's longer than the following two movements combined. But for all the time and space it occupies, it is not hard to follow. Beethoven alone among composers of his generation knew how to expand the classical structures he inherited without upsetting their delicate proportions or abandoning their inner logic. The slow movement is in B major, a remote key, but one which is familiar from the earliest digressions of the opening allegro. The strings begin with a noble theme to which the piano responds with an eloquent cantilena. 
midway through, the piano has a chain of trills that rises more than an octave by half steps, while the orchestra plays broken chords, as if stunned by this daring high-wire act. Finally, there is the celebrated moment when the strings drop from B to B-flat, and the piano begins to putter in the makings of a dazzling new theme, which it suddenly unleashes without pause to open the rondo finale. This robust and seemingly tireless music dashes headlong through a generous sampling of keys until it collapses just before the end, leaving only the piano and the timpani to reach the final bars. Beethoven's brilliance wasn't lost on the Leipzig audience, who took it all in and applauded enthusiastically. The critic for the prestigious Allgemeine Musikalische Zeitung reported that this was undoubtedly one of the most original, imaginative, effective, but also most difficult of all existing concertos, words that still hold true today. Beethoven withheld the important Vienna premiere until February 1812, perhaps still vainly hoping that he might be able to take his place at the keyboard. It was his student, the young Karl Czerny, however, who played that night. The response this time was poor, perhaps because this grand and noble work was tacked onto a charity event which consisted largely of Viennese society ladies in living tableau of famous paintings. Philip Pusher's program notes on Beethoven's Emperor, Piano Concerto Number no. 5. And now on to Antonine Vorschach's Symphony No. 7, a work lasting about 38 minutes. To the late 19th century, Dvorak was the composer of five symphonies. His first four symphonies, never published during his lifetime, were unknown. This powerful D minor work was published in 1885 as the Symphony No. 2, simply because it was the second symphony by Dvorak to come off the printer's press, even though it was the seventh to come from the composer's pen. Dvorak, who was perhaps the only one capable of setting the record straight, didn't, when at the top of the manuscript wrote Symphony Number no. 6, discounting a first symphony that was never returned from an orchestral competition and thus presumed lost. Like his 19th century colleagues Schubert and Bruckner, Dvorak has been good to musicologists who sometimes make a living straightening up after the fact. The music itself, what was known of it, has long been loved by the public, but only with the publication of Dvorak's first four symphonies in the 1950s, the long-lost first symphony was rediscovered after the composer's death and performed for the first time in 1936, did we begin to use the current numbering. By now, even musicians who grew up knowing this symphony as number two have come to accept it as number seven. In the spring of 1884, Dvorak went to London at the invitation of the Royal Philharmonic Society, whose members received him with enthusiasm and affection. After he returned home in June, the society elected him a member and commissioned a new symphony, but Dvorak waited six months before he began to work on it. In a sense, this symphony was born the day Dvorak first heard Brahms' new third symphony, and that was the music that still filled his head when he sat down that December to begin sketching. Johannes Brahms had already played a decisive role in Dvorak's life, lending support and encouragement and persuading his own publisher, Fritz Schimrock, to take him on. 
Although Brahms insisted their admiration was reciprocal, history has tended to hear Brahms' voice in Dvorak's music and not the other way around. The work on the new symphony went quickly, three months from the first sketch to the finished product, but not smoothly. The sketches are a muddle. Many pages are incomplete, as if Dvorak didn't know how to continue. In February 1885, he wrote to Shimrock informing him of the new symphony and mentioning Brahms' name in the same breath. Quote, I don't want to let Brahms down, unquote. By March 17th, the work was done, and Brahms could not possibly have been disappointed with the result. This is arguably Dvorak's finest symphony. When Donald Tovey ranked this D minor symphony with Schubert's great C major and the four by Brahms, it was not because of Dvorak's indebtedness to either of those composers, but because he truly thought this work worthy of that exalted comparison. The D minor symphony not only represents a mastery of form comparable to that of Schubert or Brahms and new to Dvorak, but it searches for a deeper meaning than audiences had come to expect from the composer of popular Slavonic dances. Fritz Shemrock greeted this new symphony, as most of Dvorak's music, with the transparent disappointment that it was not another set of Slavonic dances, which he could quickly print and easily sell, making both him and Dvorak richer. Dvorak, who understood that music brings its own riches, was irritated that Shemrock was unmoved by this symphony's great success at its London premiere under the composer's direction. And so the two were set for a confrontation. That came soon enough when Shemrock offered a mere 3,000 marks for the symphony, which Dvorak considered an insult, and then insisted that the printed score bear the German Anton rather than the Czech Antonin, which the composer took as a personal attack on his nationality. Ultimately, they compromised on A-N-T, period, the neutral abbreviation saving not only space, but a friendship as well. Dvorak said that the main theme of the first movement came to him while he stood on the platform waiting for the train from Pest to arrive at the state station, an unlikely inspiration, made more likely by the knowledge that Dvorak spent hours of his adult life monitoring the progress of trains in rail yards wherever he lived. When he moved to New York, he loved watching the Boston trains come in. The second theme, in B-flat, and far too lovely to have been launched by a locomotive, leads to a magnificent and generous paragraph. The development of these materials is short and densely packed. The movement ends not with the tragic power which it has so brilliantly harnessed, but in a sudden demise. The second movement is remarkable not only for the quality of its material, but also for the way it unfolds freely and unpredictably. This is very rich music, both intimate and open-hearted. Sweeping lyricism gives way to brief emerging comments from the horn, the clarinet, or the oboe. The Largo of the later New World Symphony may always be more famous and more easily remembered, for it is a big and gorgeous tune, but Dvorak never surpassed the achievement of this movement. Many scherzos are dance-like, but this one nearly lifts an audience to its feet and sometimes prompts a bit of podium activity as well with its lively and infectious rhythm. There's also the added excitement of an accompaniment that suggests two beats to the bar and a melody that wants three. 
With the finale, tragedy reappears, rules, a number of themes, dictates a particularly stormy episode midway through, and admits a turn to D major only at the very end. Program notes by Philip Pusher on Antonin Vorzak's Symphony No. 7. My name is Rich Caparella. Thanks for listening.